What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan, and I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, has all this rotation made you seasick yet? Earlier this year was the massive rotation out of big tech and other growth stocks and into more cyclical and value-oriented stocks. But a whiff of hawkishness from the Federal Reserve has caused everyone to sort of jump back to the other side of the boat again, and growth is outperforming once again, at least for now. Now, some people are saying the market is falling for a head fake from the Fed, but we want to get into it with the head strategist at a major pioneering quantitative fund manager. But first, I want to bring in our co-host and sorry to all the Charlie Pellet fans out there, but no Charlie Pellet intro this this week. And that's because this co-host is there's no mystery about her. She's been on the show before and gotten the Charlie Pellet treatment. Her name is Vildana Hyrick. She is a cross asset reporter at Bloomberg. Vildana, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, I wouldn't be opposed if we had another Charlie Pellet treatment here. You're are you're disappointed, aren't you? Everyone loves the Charlie. I am. The Charlie I Pellet. would have loved it. All right. I'm sorry. I apologize. Next time. But I will point out Vildana, as many of you know, is what I consider the chief crazy things correspondent for what goes up. Uh, many of the crazy things I've brought to the show have been courtesy of Vildana. You're actually very sane and level headed for someone who is such an expert in crazy things, though, I got to say. They're just really interesting to read. And I have what I think is a pretty good one. You do? Today. OK, good. Yes. I got a good one, too. Hopefully we don't have the same one. That, that would be awkward. And by all means, if you see something crazy, a reminder that we have a podcast hotline that's just sitting here waiting for you to leave us a voicemail. Vildana, our our old friend Sarah, promised she would call the hotline and and leave us some crazy things. But um, alas, so far, I'm like a kid on Christmas checking the voicemail and I'm nothing in my stocking. But I'm thinking maybe she's just forgotten the number. So I'll give the number. It's uh, 646-324-3490. So please do give us a call, leave us a voicemail, and maybe we'll play it on the show. But let's get to that guest. As I said, he is the head of investment strategists at a big uh, fund manager uh, that manages about $637 billion in assets. His name is Wes Krill, head strategist at Dimensional Fund Advisors. Wes, welcome to the show. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Wes, I've got good news. I'm going to start off with what we call in the industry a softball question for you. Uh, so so that's my gift to you today. But I I'm, I'm just want to talk a little bit from your perspective about the approach Dimensional takes to investing. Uh, now, obviously, Dimensional, as I said in the intro, uh, considered a very pioneering firm that was sort of uh, one of the first to be at the intersection of kind of the academic thinking about markets and actually managing money using those types of approaches in the real world. Uh, for example, the founders uh, studied under Eugene Fama and Kenneth French. Um, but I'm curious just for you to explain to us, what is Dimensional's approach to investing? 
Yeah, of course. So, you know, we were founded in 1981, uh, and we've always been built on implementing the great ideas in finance. And to your point, you know, a lot of that is cultivating these deep connections with some of the luminaries in the academic world, uh, Fama and French, like you mentioned, uh, Robert Merton, Robert Novi Marx. And uh, so that's been really instrumental in the way that we've built our firm. And then a central tenet to our investment philosophy is our deep-seated belief in markets. So what that means is when we go to uh, seek to outperform markets, we do so not by trying to outguess market prices or figure out where they've gone wrong, but by emphasizing certain groups of securities with higher expected returns based on research, very rigorous research from the academic community. And of course, you know, we have a fanatical emphasis on the role of implementation. We feel that's a really critical level of expertise to have when you're trying to translate these ideas from the academic world into real world value add investments for our clients. I know you guys recently converted a bunch of your mutual funds into ETFs, and it was a really big deal in the world of ETFs. And I'd love to chat about that in, in a second. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about what types of things uh, your clients and, and pe people you've been having conversations with recently have been asking you about and what's been on their minds. And, and I ask because I'm thinking of all of the fund manager surveys and all these different surveys that we tend to see from from week to week where some of the topics recently, I feel like, have been changing, where the virus used to be at the top of, of mind for a lot of people, and, and it's sort of fallen off, and now it's more Fed and questions around inflation. Yes, certainly. I mean, those come up in conversations. I would say the, the foremost conversation topic for us, and this has been the case really for years, is the performance of small cap value versus large cap growth. And you know, what's been interesting is you've sort of seen a seesaw uh, in terms of the sentiment behind those questions. For a while, it was, you know, small cap value underperforming large growth, concerns around that. And then when you had small cap value coming roaring back and people would start to ask, well, how much longer can this last? And then, you know, now you see that at least in this past quarter, a small value has been underperforming large growth again. So, you know, I think it reinforces a couple of different really important points for investors, investors to keep in mind. The first is just the uncertainty around these premiums. So, you know, the premise behind small cap value stocks having higher expected returns in the market is a very simple one. It's the idea that you're paying less for a stream of future cash flows. And that's a very evergreen concept. But we also know that stock returns are volatile and these premiums can be negative for sustained periods of time. But they can also show up in really large magnitudes really quickly. The return difference between small value and large growth in the U.S. as of March 31st over the trailing six month period was 62 percentage points. That's one of the largest return deltas over such a short period of time ever. But it's not uncommon for these premiums to show up in a hurry. And this has obvious implications for investors. It means that you need to be disciplined in terms of your approach to capturing these. And it also means from an investment management standpoint, we need to be continuously pursuing these groups of stocks in a very accurate way so that our investors know what they can expect from our investment approach. You know, Wes, I want to talk about that, uh, what Vildana mentioned, the conversion of, of some of your funds into ETFs. I mean, you're still predominantly a, a mutual fund manager, but you've you know, began the process of, of converting some into ETFs. And to me, I wonder, you know, in the bigger scheme of things, that seems to me like perhaps part of the natural evolution of quant investing. You know, I think back to 1981 when you were founded. Boy, I can't imagine the man hours 
and the labor required to do just a simple regression study, say going back, uh, you know, a few decades, it, it must have been, you know, an, an army of, of people with uh, visors and, and calculators, those old Texas instrument calculators, however it, it was done. But is that part of it just that, you know, uh, the, the computing power and the brain power on Wall Street is kind of caught up with the quant uh, sort of strategies. And, you know, it, it, it's now a lot, you're able to do it a lot cheaper, able to put it in an ETF wrapper and and do it at a, a much less uh, cost basis than, than you would say years ago in the mutual fund space. Is, is, does that sound right? Is it is it kind of part of that evolution? Well, I think that, you know, the ETF conversion was was a very exciting thing for us because that conversion, that type of event had not happened at that scale before. And those particular strategies that were converted or managed with an eye towards uh, minimizing the tax impact for investors. And the ETF wrapper gives you another tool in the toolkit uh, to mitigate or to increase the tax efficiency of those strategies. And so that was a very important thing for us. But we like to say we're wrapper agnostic. You know, we believe both the mutual fund and ETF wrappers, those type of vehicles do have a place depending on an investor's objectives. But I think one of the things you're kind of hinting at with this what I'll call the rise in systematic investing. You know, that's something that we have noticed, even going back further, again, to your point, you know, you mentioned how the ability to identify, you know, factors within the investment data uh, is a lot easier now than it used to be. You know, we're used to have computers the size of entire rooms like the one I'm sitting in uh, that you needed to run regressions to identify these kind of parameters. Uh, yeah, now it's much simpler. You could probably do it on a smartphone at this point. There is actually an academic by the name of Campbell Harvey who keeps track of all of the factors that have been identified in the academic literature. And last time I checked, it was up over 500. Uh, and in fact, another academic named John Cochran refers to this as the factor zoo. Uh, now, this is not to say that there's that many, maybe hundreds of different distinct sources of expected returns. A lot of these are probably variations of the same economic concept that are repackaged. But I think it does bring the conversation back to the importance of implementation. It's one thing to identify a group of securities that, based on historical data, will outperform in a simulation. Bringing that to a real-world investment solution where you deliver the outperformance net of implementation costs is a different story altogether. And I'll give you one really simple example. The Russell 2000, a small-cap index, we know from the research that small-cap securities have higher expected returns than large caps. Well, the small cap Russell 2000 index has historically underperformed the Russell 1000 index going back to 1979. So that's one example where just identifying a group of stocks you expect to have higher returns doesn't always pan out in an investment vehicle. You really need this level of expertise in the research, design, management, and last but not least, trading of a strategy to capture these sources of higher expected returns for investors. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I want to ask you, and, and Mike and I were chatting about this uh, right before our conversation, but when it comes to some of those factors, does it feel like all of the good ones have already been sort of discovered and exploited and repackaged, as you say, or is there something else out there that you you're finding really exciting? Well, I think that's certainly a challenge, you know, especially let's say you're a finance student these days compared to one 30 years ago to find something that hasn't already been uh, discovered. Uh, there's certainly the incentive to try and look for something that's new. Um, but I think that, you know, just because some of these core kind of asset allocation determining building blocks like size, value or profitability, you know, even if you can't add on to those necessarily, there's a lot of other inputs into a strategy that need to be taken into account. And that's where, you know, some of the really exciting research has been done, uh, you know, internally with our research team, where we look at things like this, where you find shorter term drivers of expected returns that are really trade offs that you have to balance against things like size, value or profitability. You know, if you think about a value strategy, how do stocks often become value stocks? Well, it's following a period of relative underperformance versus their peers. What do we know from the phenomenon of momentum within the cross-section of stocks? Well, stocks that have had relatively poor returns uh, in previous periods tend to continue to have relatively poor returns in the short run. And so additional sources of information about expected returns like that are really crucial to, again, even for these well-established factors like size, value, and profitability, making sure that we capture our fair share of those is still a very important part of implementation. Uh, Wes, I'm glad you brought up Cam Harvey. We've had him on the show uh, a few times, uh, not in a while, though. But it, uh, listeners, if you want to hear more of the thoughts of Cam, scroll back on the on the phone a few uh, a year or two. And, and we had a couple of good episodes with Cam. I'll have to get him back on. But Wes, I want to talk about what I what I mentioned at the top of the show is basically what appears to be kind of a, a reversal in the rotation back to growth and, and tech leadership now. Uh, maybe the thinking is the Fed took a little bit of the wind out of the sails of the reflation trade that was boosting, uh, you know, the, the banks, the energy companies, the, the real cyclical and, and value sectors of the market. How are you thinking about that? Is, uh, you know, and Vildana has written about this and, and some others. A lot of people think this is kind of a, a, a wrong reaction from the market to rotate this aggressively back into growth, that there's still some juice left to be squeezed out of the, the value and cyclical trade. Uh, how, how are you thinking about it? Well, we can start with first principles when it comes to why we would believe in a value premium or a size premium or profitability premium in the first place. And it's based on the fact that there are differences in discount rates across stocks, right? Investors are going to require different rates of return to hold different stocks. Just like if you had a whole population of people went to the bank for a loan, they're likely to get different interest rates from the bank. And so it's similar that we would expect something like that to be true for, uh, for stock discount rates. Size, value, and profitability are just based on using price combined with fundamentals to identify these differences in expected returns, which means that every single day, based on the information known to market participants, there's some stocks with higher expected returns than others. And that's what we're talking about with these expected premiums, such as a value premium. So we expect this premium every day. Now, we know from the data that these premiums can be volatile. If you just look on a rolling you know, one-year basis, about 40% of 12-month periods going back to the 1920s in the U.S., growth has outperformed value. And I think that really hints at this notion of the difference between 
realize returns and expect returns. So many people had attributed the strong performance of growth stocks versus value in you know, kind of the decade leading up to the big turnaround for value recently. And they kind of laid that at the feet of the Fed. But when you look at the performance of those growth stocks over that period where they were churning out 20% per year in terms of returns, you have to ask yourself as an investor, do I believe the expected return for this asset class is 20%? That seems awfully high. And I think we would look at that and say a good portion of that was an unexpected component of the return that might have been based on you know, great success for some of these companies. It could have been unexpected to a certain extent. Certainly, when you look at their valuations, they were creeping up. They were still are very, very high. Um, so when I think about is the question uh, of, is there any juice left to squeeze from this lemon? My question would be, well, what's changed about your expectation for the value premium? As long as you believe that low prices associated with higher expected returns, there's plenty of juice left to squeeze because we still expect a value premium every single day. You know, Wes, I'm curious how your approach fits in with a year like this. Uh, you know, and I know being anchored in sort of the academic uh, approach of, of investing and, and very much anchored to the efficient market uh, hypothesis uh, at Dimensional. Then, boy, we enter a year like 2021, right? And we've got all of a sudden all the, the discount brokerages just completely get rid of commissions. You've got all these people stuck at home. Uh, they can't go out. They can't bet on sports, you know. They've got a lot of spare cash, whether it be uh, because of that or because of the stimulus uh, from the government and whatnot. And we have this phenomenon like the Reddit stocks just going going absolutely nuts. And it's hard to for me to sort of wrap my head around how a, a student of sort of efficient market theory could can kind of operate in that environment. I mean, um, does it change your approach at all to see this type of behavior Uh and half jokingly, I ask, is there perhaps a Reddit factor that can be exploited? You know, is there a Wall Street bets factor that you could somehow quantify and, and try to play with? And, and feel free to tell me I'm crazy for thinking that. I've, I've heard it before, but I'm just curious how you think about a year like this um, with that academic background, that efficient markets theory background uh, with a market that a lot of times is being driven by day traders, you know, placing trades uh, based on what they read on Reddit and what they think the crowd, where they think the crowd's going to go next. Well, I think it reinforces the need for flexibility within your investment approach and having a daily process. So, you know, when we look at the price change for individual securities, I mean, we know it can happen because of maybe a change in the expectation for the future, for the cash flows of the firm. It could reflect a change in the discount rate that's assigned to those expected future cash flows. Very difficult, if not impossible, to disentangle those two effects. But what we do know is that when price is higher, expected returns are lower. So where that's relevant is if you have a strategy like, say, one that's focused on small cap value stocks. Well, if you have a company like one of the ones you're mentioning that started off a small cap value and all of a sudden its price is now making it one of the largest two or 300 companies in the U.S., well, then at that point, it's not really fitting the definition of higher expected returns in accordance with a small cap value portfolio. So if I have a daily process, then I can make the determination to sell that out of the portfolio at that time. It, it's funny when you look at uh, you know, some of the index approaches, you can use the Russell 2000 value as an example, where as of May 31st, you've got GameStop and AMC still within the index. And at that time, they were counting for about one and a half percentage points of the index. Uh, and you, know, you might even think of that as a almost a Yao Ming-like outlier, like if you had Yao Ming visiting a kindergarten class and the size discrepancy, kind of the picture you would get if you think about those two companies in a small value index. But they weren't alone. 
In fact, you had about 15% of the Russell 2000 Values holdings were actually in the top 1,000 largest in the U.S., which is obviously the domain of the Russell 1000 indices. So, you know, again, that's kind of a function of the way that indices do their rebalancing in the case of the Russell indices once per year. We believe in having a daily process so we can reflect changes in market prices throughout the year and rebalance our portfolios incrementally. And you need flexibility to do that. You have to have flex- flexibility across names, through time, and individual names. So you're not beholden to one individual trade. And that way you can dynamically react to the way prices change to continuously pursue higher expected returns and manage risk at the same time. I, I got to say, I would love to see Yao Ming visit a kindergarten class. I'd, I'd pay I'd pay cover charge for that, Vildana. I'm sure you would. <laughs> Most of Mike's sports jokes go over my head. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. But but to go back to what Mike was saying about this year, um, you know, returns have been really great. I think we were checking the numbers just this morning. It's been the second best first half of the year in about two decades or so. And, and then at the same time, you have all these naysayers uh, warning about bu- bubble and pockets, bubbles and, and pockets uh, of the market that are sort of bubblicious, if I can use that word. I like that. But is that, <laughs> thanks, is that a prevalent uh, sense right now? Or, or is it just uh, something that you hear all the time anyway? Or, or is there sort of a, this sense of paranoia that's just a bit more prevalent just because the market's been doing so well for the last year? Well, the danger with using the expectation or the fear of a bubble to influence your asset allocation decisions is the possibility that you might be wrong and the enormous opportunity costs for doing so. And again, you know, I keep going, I think 2020 was a great example of all the case studies that you can use, where if you look at the flows that were going into money market funds uh, in Q1 of 2020, I mean, it was you know, close to 700 billion of dollars, presumably going out of equities into money market funds. And then what happened subsequent to the end of Q1 that year? Well, you had an enormous tear where you had equities globally, you know, delivering 30 some percentage points worth of return over the next two quarters. So that's what's potentially on the table if you let expectations of when maybe these premiums are going to show up in the future influence what you're going to do. We don't know when these premiums are going to show up. That's kind of the nature of, you know, not just the equity premium, but size, value and profitability. You know, the value premium, again, we keep going back to this one because it's been in the news so much lately. One out of 20 months in the U.S. historically, so this is data going back to 1926, value stocks outperform growth stocks by seven and a half percentage points. That's 15 times what their unconditional average was. Uh, So I think that just this notion that things can turn very quickly, unless you know what the news that's going to influence expectations in the future is going to be, then the most tried and true method of capturing your fair share of the market return and of these premiums is to stay consistently invested. So when they do show up, you're there to capture them. At the same time, we do have this long cohort that's been consistently buying, which is which has been the retail investor. I read a note earlier this week that said last Friday was a record day for retail tr- traders buying equities. Uh, I'm wondering how you guys are thinking about the retail investor and, and their involvement in the market and how much of your conversion from of your mutual funds into ETFs is aimed at attracting retail money potentially. Yeah, one of the benefits for us having different investment solutions in different wrappers, whether it's open and mutual funds, ETFs, separately managed accounts, 
we want our clients to have lots of different ways to use dimensional investment solutions within the way they're building an asset allocation for their clients. And, you know, so we want at the end of the day to have all of those choices on the table for them, but we still very much believe in the idea of having these financial intermediaries. And again, some of the lessons we've been talking about of the opportunity cost from deviating at the market at, at the wrong time or not being consistently uh, exposed to these premiums can be greatly mitigated by, you know, for example, an end investor having an advisor uh, who helps helps them stay consistent with their investment approach. And we feel like that's a very big benefit for investors. And then all of our investment solutions are really tailored so that they can make the best decisions of how to piece these things together, consistent with the goals of their clients. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know, Wes says uh, regular listeners will know. Um, I think I'm contractually obligated to discuss inflation on the on this show. Uh, perhaps legally obligated. I, I think they passed a law somewhere. All podcast hosts must uh, discuss inflation. But I mean, obviously, the big wild card, the big variable, everyone's top of mind this year. Uh, will it be transitory or not? How long is transitory really mean? How are you thinking about inflation and and is it affecting the way you're thinking about portfolios? You know, break it down to us about, you know, your your sort of 30,000 view of inflation and, and what to do about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, depending on who you talk to, you get lots of differing viewpoints in terms of their expectations for inflation. So it's helpful for us to just look at what is the market in aggregate telling us about inflation expectations and you know, we can see that from some indicators. Uh, for example, you can use break-even inflation or the difference in yields between nominal and inflation-protected treasuries at the same maturity. You can use the, you know, the, the forward inflation expectations, something like the five-year, five-year. So if I look at the five-year break-even inflation rate right now, or at least as of a few weeks ago, it was hovering around right around 2.4%. The five-year, five-year forward inflation, which is telling you something about inflation expectations for the five-year period after the next five years, so basically covering 10 full years here, that number was around 2.1%. Both of those numbers are pretty well in line with historical trends. So looking at those indicators, it doesn't seem that the market in aggregate is expecting particularly high inflation. And expected inflation is incorporated into security prices, whether you're buying you know, stocks or bonds or anything that's in nominal terms, you're getting compensation for expected inflation. Now, some investors might be particularly sensitive to inflation, and that means they might be concerned with unexpected inflation. So, for example, if consumer prices rise 
more than the broad market is expecting, then they might want to seek additional protection for that. And there are options. And it's sort of like the, the COVID vaccines where you have different ways to reach the same level of inoculation. Uh, you can use Treasury inflation protected securities, uh, which will hedge on expected inflation. There's a consideration there, which is that the yields on those are very, very low. The, the real interest rates for U.S. Treasuries are negative across the board, across all maturities. Um, then there's also the possibility of having a fixed income solution, which combines uh, inflation swap overlays. So you're getting you're going to get paid real inflation or actual inflation, and then it's overlaid on corporate bond strategies. We can expand your opportunity set uh, to different levels of credit in different currencies as well. So there are options for investors who do have concerns about unexpected inflation. But I think getting to this notion that expected inflation, which is whatever the market believes is going to come to pass, is being compensated in current security prices. And let's face it, the market, when they're producing prices like this, they are very difficult to outguess. We might all have our opinions on what's going to happen in the future. But looking at the data around active fund managers, outguessing market prices is very difficult for most folks. You know, Wes, before we get to the, the crazy things, I, I just want to get your your sort of current of the moment thoughts on on asset allocation, if I can. And you know, let's start, you know, with the hypothetical 60-40. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of debate recently of whether 60-40 is dead or, you know, what should go into that 40% bucket? Um, you know, should you be 70-30 or, or whatever, whatever the case may be? There's there's kind of a lot of uh, diversity of opinion on, on the whole notion of a diverse what a diversified portfolio should should look like right now. So I'm just kind of curious where you stand on that idea. Um, you know, are you a 60, 40 type of guy? Uh, and if so, what, you know, what exactly are you putting in your 60? What are you putting in your 40? You know, a lot of people saying you got to take a little more risk in the 40, get some credit in there, some corporate credit, maybe some EM debt, that sort of thing. How are you thinking about it all? And how much Bitcoin is part of that? <laughs> or Dogecoin for that matter. Well, I'll start with what the theory tells us. And it tells us that your asset allocation, especially that split between equities and fixed income, is going to be a function of really the relative amount of actual invested capital you have versus your human capital. So when you first start out working where most of your assets on your quote unquote balance sheet, if you want to call it that, is your human capital, your ability to continue to work, to save more money and to contribute to your savings in the future. And as you transition through your working life, when you get closer to retirement, Obviously, you've exhausted more of your human capital. You probably don't want to work forever, uh, but hopefully you've been able to accumulate more in terms of invested assets. So when you think about the riskiness of each one of those components, your human capital is a much more stable and lower risk component than your investment capital. So when you're, when you're young, when you're starting off in your working career, that means that most of your balance sheet is in, quote unquote, lower risk assets. So you might take more risk in terms of your invested assets. So that's why you might see a higher allocation to equities when you're at a younger investment age. Obviously, as you proceed through your investment lifetime, you start to transition or de-risk your financial assets and you start to transition into more fixed income heavy allocation. So, you know, that's something that I think is probably a good starting point when you're thinking about how much, you know, you how much do you want to continue to work, how much, how on target you are in terms of what you've been able to save for your financial goals. And you can make your equity fixed determination from there. Now, within each one of those sleeves, I start with the notion that you want it to be as diversified as possible. So within the equity sleeve, maybe you have a global allocation to equities. Does that mean you're going to hold just an exact facsimile of the global market portfolio? Maybe not. You might have reasons to deviate. 
U.S.-based investors tend to have a home bias towards U.S. stocks. You might have an overweight there. But I think broad diversification is a very important component. Within the fixed income, some of that depends on what your ultimate goals are. And let's say your goals are to support consumption within retirement. That kind of sets up almost like a liability. Like if you were to think of a, say, an insurance company that has cash flow needs at certain periods in time, those are liabilities that they're going to try and hedge with their fixed income. And this is where maybe a liability-driven investment approach might work, where you have fixed income that has a duration that's tailored or connected to whatever the liabilities are, uh, those uh, cash flow needs you have in retirement. They have a duration associated with them, and it changes through time. So by having a dynamic allocation to your fixed income, that's one example of how you would tailor that fixed income sleeve to whatever your needs are. Well, Don, I'm just glad, Wes, when he started talking about people getting further along into the workforce and, and closer to the retirement age, that he, he didn't point right at me. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad about that. Well, well, listeners can't see, but he did, actually. <laughs> so everybody knows he did point at Mike. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. As he should. As he should. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Well, uh, Wes, great conversation. I think that is our segue to the crazy things. Vildana, I know you brought a good one for us. I'm going to save yours for last. But Wes, how about you, Dad? Have you seen anything crazy in markets in the last week? Yeah, there was one that kind of caught my attention. And it happened right when there was a press conference for the Portugal soccer team, during which Cristiano Ronaldo uh, came up to the stage. And as part of their promotional period for Coca-Cola, there were, of course, two Coca-Cola bottles sitting right next to his microphone. And, of course, his reaction was to remove those from the table and hold up a bottle of water, uh, I guess encouraging people to drink water. What was notable about this was that that day Coca-Cola stock went down about $4 billion. So, uh, you know, whether it's cause and effect, whether it was just a coincidence, kind of interesting because Coca-Cola actually owns some water distribution companies. (laughs) So, you know, they should be able to benefit from a widespread surge in water consumption. Uh, But that was certainly one that was notable. That was uh, that's a great one. That's a perfect uh, crazy thing. And I, I, you know, interestingly, you would think the the margins on water are probably a lot higher for Coke. Anyway, it, I guess it, maybe it wasn't the Dasani brand or, or whatever Coke's brand is that, that he held up. But that's that's a good one. That's a pretty good one. And then another guy pushed aside the Heineken. I think too. They he he didn't want to be associated with Heineken. So. <laughs> Little uh, a little uh, activism in the in the soccer world, and then they I think they were all told stop doing this, just leave the cokes in front. <laughs> Not a good <laughs> leak for the sponsor. <laughs> that's right, that's right. All right, well, that's a good one. And I'm, mine is very uh, food oriented too. And and you may argue with me that this is not exactly a market story, but uh, I will push back on that because my crazy thing is about the avocado market, Bildana. Uh, and to prove it's a valid topic, there is a ticker on the Bloomberg for avocado prices out of Mexico. So, you know, you can you can run a regression on it. The seasonality on it is interesting. I don't know if you want to get into the avocado trade, Wes, but I, I encourage you to check it out. But this is a, a really good story from The Wall Street Journal, uh, one of their A-head stories on page one. And it's about the fact that avocados have gotten so pricey that there are these organized gangs going in and trying to to basically rob avocado farms and what the farmers are doing to to prevent it. They talk about one farmer in South Africa. He's got motion-activated infrared cameras uh, around the 170-acre farm. Um, He's also got on standby a rapid response team that's led by an (laughs) ex-military guy 
complete with tracker dogs, and they try to, you know, immediately react to the avocado thieves as they come in. Um, one of my favorite things in Mexico, the drug cartels are actually fighting over the avocado crop now because the, the prices prices have gotten so far. But they say, you know, these just aren't sort of smash and grab guys. That they, they basically planned this to a T, and the journal describes it as large choreographed raids on farms where they can basically steal about a, a ton of avocados in, in a very short time, I think like a, a couple hours. And then they, they take it, they launder it onto the black avocado market and, uh, and make a fortune of it. So fascinating stuff. I know our colleague Tracy Alloway loves to, ch to chart the correlation of avocado prices with Bitcoin. So uh, uh, another reason why this is, I think, uh, a good candidate for our crazy things, Valdana. I don't know if you'll if you'll allow me this uh, this rare commodity trade uh, to be a crazy thing. I'll allow it, and I'll even allow you to name it. You can name it the guacamole cartel. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I'm open. I'm open to to other names, the, other suggestions. The guac cartel. I, I like that. All right, not bad. All right, what do you have for us, Vildana? Mine is not food related, but. I'm leaving the planet for for mine. Uh, and it's I, I read this story about Procter and Gamble saying that they've signed an agreement with NASA to test laundry solutions in the International Space Station, which I thought was really interesting because there are no washing machines in space. So basically what happens, astronauts just wear the same clothes over and over until they're like totally disgusting. And so this is a, a way for them to try to make continuous space living actually a possibility, I suppose. So they're, I guess they're not sure how Procter and Gamble detergent behaves in, in space. Well, you can't, you can't, ha you can't wash clothes in space. And so they're trying to figure out a way to actually make that happen. Huh? That's a good one. Hmm. I gotta say. If they can make that's dry shampoo, maybe they can make dry detergent. <laughs> that's, that's right, right, right. Dry cleaners. Then again, there's not a lot of dirt in space either. I imagine those uh, International Space Station is a pretty sterile environment. So how much? Uh, no. No, because astronauts have to exercise two hours a day. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So they're they're. They can get pretty gross. So they've got pit stains on their their spacesuits and stuff. I guess. Wow. All right. Well, that seems like uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm, you know, if this whole space tourism thing kicks off uh, further, uh, that's that's going to that's going to come in handy. I don't know, Wes. I don't know how you trade that one. Is there I, I don't know what the uh, end market is for uh, for detergent in space. Still wrapping my my head around the expectations there. <laughs> All right. We'll have to check back on that. We'll see how they did on that experiment. That's a good one, Vildana. I don't know if the share price moved or not, but uh, no, but it was just a fun read. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, you won't see some astronaut in a press conference push the, the Tide pods away from him. Anyway. That would, make, that would make the share price. That would make the share price. Absolutely. Anyway, Valdada Hyrick, uh, Wes Krill, so happy to have you on the show. Really enjoyed the conversation, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. goes up we'll be back next week until then you can find us on the bloomberg terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts we'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on apple podcasts so more listeners can find us and you can find us on twitter follow me at reganonymous vildana is at vildana hyrick 
You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.